Tonight we turn together to Article 1 of the Belgian Confession as we continue to look at God's attributes, at the character of God. Page 855 in the back of your hymnals. And we'll be looking at a number of verses in the Scriptures, not uh, per se exegeting and expositing all of them, but just using them to show the Scriptures' testimony concerning the immutability of God, and I've listed some of them in your bulletin, James 1.17 and Malachi 3 verse 6. We'll be looking at other verses, but turn first to James chapter 1 verse 17, page 1011. 1011 in your Bibles there in front of you. Reminding us again of this article of the Christian faith concerning the only God We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. We consider that attribute of God tonight is unchanging nature. The attribute is stated in the negative. We speak of the immutability of God, immutable. The God is not mutable. God does not change. He is what he is always and forever. Tonight we want to see uh, that in the scriptures and then consider what that uh, means, what that uh, says to us as his people, how that encourages us and how we can delight in that truth about God. As we begin, we define God's immutability. Immutability does not mean immobility or that he is inert, that he is somehow static or unmoving. He controls and governs uh, the world with sovereign power, giving life to the world. Scriptures state that in him we live and move and have our being. He is moving over the waters as the scriptures speak of him. He moves over the nations. He moves over his people going before them. In that picture in the Old Testament, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night, Uh, he is not one who is uh, static. But Scripture teaches that God does not change. Now, we're changing. The world is changing. We are becoming, some of us, if we admit it, are becoming older and perhaps even weaker. As we're young, perhaps the world is before us and we think, oh, I'm getting stronger, I'm becoming wiser, becoming more knowledgeable. But we're all becoming and we all face those stages. We go through the stages of becoming. But God, God is. He does not change. Children, let me give an illustration or a visual, rather, that will bring us to James 1.17 and the Bible's teaching on God's unchanging nature. When the sun is shining and it's shining at an angle, what happens to your shadow? It's very large. It, it's, it's long, and it looks like it's, it's, it's at its apex, like it's growing. But as that sun rises in the sky and comes over top, the shadow shrinks and becomes less and less. And when the sun is directly over top, we're standing on our shadow, and then the sun goes to the other side, and the shadow extends in the other direction. It seems as though from that uh, 
illustration that James is, is uh, making the distinction that we're changing. We, we change in, in our knowledge, in our understanding, in, in our, our lives. But then he responds that God doesn't change like shifting shadows. He opens his letter there by saying that we change because of experiences. We go through testings and trials and we're to be growing. Those testings and trials are for our good. We're to rejoice in them, James says, because in that God is developing perseverance that we might be made complete, that we might grow in our understanding, in our uh, knowledge about ourselves and about God how much we need him and how much he is able to deliver. God says, if you don't understand what you're going through, if you're struggling, then ask of me. Ask for wisdom and I will give generously. God has all wisdom, all knowledge. He isn't learning or growing. He's able to help as his people call to him and he promises that he will answer those who call. Listen to that verse, uh, first off, verse 17 of James 1, as we begin to look at some passages. He writes, every good and perfect, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. NIV puts it this way, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like Shifting shadows, as we were just talking about. God is unchanging in his eternal being. A.W. Pink says it this way, God cannot change for the better, for he is perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. God's immutability seems to be a rather elementary truth concerning God's being. We, we find that at the very outset of Scripture, and yet there are many Christians who, who talk as though God was learning as he goes, or that God is getting bigger as he, uh, as he ex- exhibits his attributes in, uh, uh, in, in daily living. But what's really happening when we see God in a bigger light, it's we're changing, and I didn't look this up, but so I, I might not get all of the details straight, but in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy, when she returns to Narnia after being gone in the first book, returns and she sees Aslan, the picture of Christ. She comes to him and she hugs him and she says, you've grown, you're, you're bigger. And Aslan says, no, no, you've grown. You've grown in your understanding so that I appear bigger so that I appear larger to you, for you have come to a deeper understanding of me. And so when we think about God maybe growing or, wow, he's greater than we thought, nothing has changed in God. We, by God's grace, are growing in our understanding of him. And we see him in our mind's eye and our understanding as having grown, but he doesn't become greater. He doesn't uh, uh, perfect his attributes. He has them all perfectly from eternity. Why does this happen? Why do we get confused sometimes uh, about God and his changing nature? Well, one of the reasons is we, the songs we listen to. 
Or the songs that we sing. There are, there are songs that we listen to. That There's even songs that we sing that, that maybe confuse us a bit. One of the ones I was reminded of this week in my study was one that's very uh, uh, near and dear to us, and that is, And Can It Be? You know the song, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Love? What, is the, what does the chorus say? And uh, can it be that, or excuse me, it says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Think about that. Can God die? What would happen if God died? Well, everything would cease to be because he holds it all together. It is by God, his, by his power, that all holds together. So what's happening in that song? As, as much as we like those words, well, we, we often uh, are reminded that we can say uh, uh, about Jesus, uh, what we can say about his divine nature, we can say about his human nature, we can hold them together. But it's, it's been said this way, whatever can be ascribed to one nature of Christ can equally be used to describe the person. Now, it's true, the one whom we embrace as God incarnate, the one who is the God-man, died on the cross. Jesus died but as to his human nature, not his divine nature. So, perhaps changing the wording would help us to keep our thoughts clear. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my Lord, shouldst die for me? For that does not do any injustice or bring any confusion into this idea of who God is, that he is unchanging. God's immutability is the glory of his attributes. It says, it's, it's the glory of his attributes in this way. It says that it, it can't increase. <laughs> it, it can't get better. It can't grow. God is unchanging. There's no attribute that needs to grow and there's none that will shrink in God. Again, A.W. Pink's quote, God cannot change for the better for he is perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Well, secondly tonight, the delineating of God's immutability. There are texts, many texts to teach this doctrine. I would encourage you to to study this attribute because it causes God's uh, greatness to grow in our lives. The more we think about God's unchanging nature, that he is perfect, it leads to, as we heard, doxology. When we learn about who God is, it ought to lead us to praise him, that he is not shifting, he's not changing, he's not, he's not rattled by what happens in the world. Indeed, he is above it and he is controlling it perfectly. Well, we talk about categories when we're delineating God's immutability, and I have three that I want to give you tonight. Now, obviously, this is an accommodation for us because God is infinite in his being. He doesn't have categories. He's not, he can't be just cut up and and looked at in categories, but this helps us kind of just organize our thoughts, as it were. God is infinite, and yet to help us organize Scripture's testimony into something we can get our heads around, these categories. First, God is immutable in his essence. He's immutable in his essence. There never was a time when he was not, and there will never be a time when he will not be. To use human imagery, human language, which is the only language we have, we could say that God never changes in his person. 
Although we've got to be careful what we, how we understand God as, as person. That's the language we use. It doesn't change in his person. He's not potentiality waiting to be realized. We talk about, that way. We talk about things that way, don't we? Oh, that person has real potential. If he practices or if he, if he continues in that, in that direction or if, or if she continues in that direction, if, if she continues to practice, then, then, then the sky's the limit, we say, or, or the potential is great. There's real potential there. But God is not potentiality waiting to be realized. God is perfect existence. The psalmist says of, of God that he is Forever. Psalm 102, as we look at some various passages, Psalm 102, when speaking of God and his relationship to creation, verses 25 to to 27, it says this, Of old, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. Everything other than God was created and is changing and perishing. God, the creator, never changes. The writer of Hebrews, when he's speaking about uh, the Lord Jesus, is ascribing to him a, a divine attribute. He says of Jesus Christ that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he's highlighting his divinity, that he is God. He is man, but he's also God. God, 100% man, that mysterious two natures of Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible, by way of analogy, speaks of God as the rock of his people. The psalmist says, the Lord is my rock, Psalm 18.2, Psalm 19.14, Psalm 62.2. Moses, Moses on numerous occasions points the people to God, their rock. At times, the people neglected God, their rock, and turned to the false gods who were nothing but figment of their imagination, always changing, but not so with our God who is a rock, Deuteronomy 32. So God is immutable in his essence. Secondly, God is immutable uh, in his uh, attributes. His love is everlasting, Jeremiah 31.8. His mercy is endures forever. Psalm 100 verse 5 and Psalm 136. His righteousness endures forever. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 9 and Psalm 112 verse 9. His attributes are unchanging. What do we believe concerning our God that he is a single spiritual, a simple spiritual being who is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, Unchanging in his infinitude, unchanging in the fact that he is almighty, perfect wisdom and justice and goodness, the overflowing source of all good. He doesn't change. He's not improving. God is immutable in all his attributes. Third, God is immutable in his counsel. He's immutable in his counsel and his word shall stand. The psalmist says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I accomplish my purposes and they shall stand. He does not change in his decree. His promises are sure. Immutable in essence, attribute and counsel. 
Now, what about the objections to immutability? Thirdly, defending God's immutability. We've briefly responded to the one. Some object if God is immutable, he's immobile, he's not alive. We've referred to those passages, the analogy of God himself as the rock of Israel, Psalm 18 and Psalm 19. Now, that analogy could be taken too far. It is meant to be understood as a picture of God's unchanging nature, that he is stable, not immobile. There's no contradiction to say that God is unchanging and alive. We mean that there is nothing in him that needs to grow or to be realized. There's nothing that he will eventually need to apologize for, coming back around saying, oh, I, 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 apologize. I didn't realize that that was going to be the outcome. I, I changed my plans. It will never happen that God will say, I didn't know the particular, that particular when I acted. He is perfect in his understanding, nothing to add. He has all knowledge, all power, all of the other things that Scripture speaks of concerning God's perfections. Second objection, God, our scripture uses language that seems to communicate that God does change. He seems to, from our perspective, change his mind. But the Bible teaches that he does not. What do you do with that? Well, we have to look more closely when, when there's these passages which seem to contradict, seem to be in conflict. There are several texts we could look at. Uh, we're, we're not going to look at all of those tonight. But I want to look at one where the Bible speaks of God regretting 1 Samuel 15, if you want to turn there, you can turn there. 1 Samuel 15, it says that God regretted making Saul king. And then just a few verses later, I choose this passage because in that same chapter, it says, I, the Lord, am not a man that I should regret. Well, now, which is it? Does he regret or doesn't he regret? How do we understand this teaching? There's a lot of things going on in this passage. We can't look at them all, but... We see that God had made Saul king, and after Saul acted in a consistent, ungodly behavior, we read in verse 11, the Lord came to Samuel and said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel confronts him, confronts Saul, and pronounces judgment upon him in verse 26, the same chapter, and and Saul can't, can't bear the thought that Samuel would not go back with him, that, that perhaps God is turning away from, from him. So as Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs hold of his robe and it tears. And, and Samuel says in verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel, a title for God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. There we see those two contra- seemingly contrasting or, or contradictory, rather, passages, verses. Does God regret or does he not regret? Well, Saul's actions are grievous, and the Lord is grieved by sin. He says, I, I, I am grieved over what Saul has done. Nothing has changed. I, I find his sin grievous. I've not changed my mind on that simply because he is now the king of my people. 
What, it, what that leads us to consider then is that there must be another king who's going to come, for God promised that there would be a king who would come that would delight him, that would be a king after his own heart. And of course, he's speaking of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings. But here we see the Lord is grieved by Saul's sin, and we're not surprised because God is holy and sin grieves him. When it says the Lord regretted making Saul king, it doesn't mean that he didn't know what Saul would do, and that if he had to do it over again, he would do things differently. Oh, I regret this. I should have seen this coming. I should have known. I'm, 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 I, I wish I could change things. It's not, what it's, it's not what it's saying. God is revealing, as he has said elsewhere, that sin grieves him, and that the one who sins, he shall be cut off. God has all knowledge. God knew that Saul would turn, and he records this event this way, with, this, with these words, with this order, in order to communicate how he views sin, so that we would, in our own understanding, or in our limited capacity, understand that God has not changed Verse 29 tells us that he would not change his mind, though Saul said, no, come back with me. Samuel says, I will return, but the Lord has declared the kingdom is taken from you. You are not the king. The Lord will not change his mind, for you have done that which is deserving of judgment. Well, we can think of other examples. Think of how God declared his word to Nineveh through the prophet Jonah. Forty days and the Lord will overthrow Nineveh. And Jonah goes to Nineveh and he declares this. And what happens? The people, even up to the palace, to the king, repent. God has not changed his mind about Nineveh. He stated that they would perish if they and the, the unspoken word is, if they did not repent. But God has also said, if you repent and turn, then I will deliver. And they did. And the means by which they repented was Jonah's preaching. Jonah understood who God was. He said, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassion. I knew you would do this, but I don't like it. Yet God says, but I am gracious and merciful even to those whom you do not see worthy of salvation. And Jonah shows himself in need of a growing understanding of God's grace and mercy, his kindness, his goodness. Well, before we close tonight, we want to look at Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. God's unchanging nature leads to his unchanging decree. It's tied together. His unchanging nature leads to his unchanging decree. His immutability is a comfort to us and a reason for rejoicing. We see that things were very dark in the days of Malachi. The people were offering uh, sinful sacrifice. The priests were receiving them and polluting the altar of the Lord. They were profaning the name of the Lord before the nations. And God said, my honor is being is being uh, uh, taken down by your actions. And throughout this book, what we see is a contrast between the people and between God. 
Those, uh, the people of God who were to be to God's glory, to live and to, to show that he was uh, deserving of all obedience, were, were, were not living that way. But God was not changing. God said, I will. I will require holiness in my people. The people could not provide it. Israel keeps sliding into unfaithfulness and covenant disinterest, but God remains steadfast. That's the message here. Though he will not be trifled with, he will not change his mind towards sinners. Malachi calls the people to repent, to renew their covenant with God, to trust again in his covenant promises rather than entertaining unbelief and showing indifference and exercising ethical compromise, just compromising in so many ways. And what we see here is that even Israel, even Israel deserved to be judged. Time and time again, Israel had failed to trust God, to be faithful to the covenant, to exhibit love for God by obedience. And it seems as if there's no hope left. In the midst of this, it seems as though God's promises will not endure, as we heard this morning from Romans 9. And yet, verse 6 of chapter 3, God says this very remarkable thing. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God's faithfulness to his promise stems from his nature. I will have a people for myself. I will. Keep them. I will provide what they are unable to provide. I will give what they need. Because of his immutable essence, that he works, that his works operate immutably as well, unchanging as well. His warnings do not change. The soul that, die, uh, the soul that sins shall die. His promises do not change. The one who repents. The one who turns shall live through my anointed. Sinners outside of Christ will be judged. Those in Christ will be saved. And we then can delight in his unchanging nature and that he keeps his promises even as he provides. In the midst of this provision, we see his great love and his grace and his mercy. His mercies which are new every morning, for indeed his faithfulness endures forever. We can delight in his unchanging love that he has for us in Christ. He will not go back on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, declaring that he will have a people for himself. Indeed, the covenant expands in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and people come from every tongue, tribe, and nation to believe. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, remembers his love, his grace to his own, whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. Therefore, as we live surrounded by a constantly changing world, we should take great comfort, have confidence in God who is never changing. He does not fluctuate in his essence, in his attributes, or in his promises. Though we know change daily, We can delight in the fact that God keeps his promises. He's a rock of refuge. He is a rock of grace and mercy. 
doesn't change his mind about saving a particular people. His word doesn't change. It's clear. It's set before us. And our hope remains strong in the God who never changes. We're confident because our God endures as we first knew him. As Lucy there in the Chronicles of Narnia, when, when, when she sees him, she sees him as bigger as she, gro- as she grows in her understanding. She sees just how great God is and it leads her to, to rejoice and to exclaim, you're bigger, more wonderful than I had known you before. May that be our testimony as we think about our God, as we consider who God is. May he grow in our minds and may our joy grow in our hearts that we might say with the psalmist, my soul will delight in the Lord for he has become my salvation. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. All glory be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our unchanging God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we sing your praises from the time we're young. Then as we grow in understanding, we sing in deeper, richer ways, pondering, considering, and understanding as you give us the ability, the riches of your grace. We pray that that would lead us to go forth, delighting even tonight, marveling at the stability that we find in you, the the glorious, unchanging nature of your being. May we desire then to change in our understanding, to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are to be, that we might Seek to live for you more and more each day. May this teaching lead then to praise in every aspect of our lives, thought, word, and deed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.